Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, a part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, there's a ton going on in the world of sports, and we're not going to get to too much of it today. Yeah, but we're going to get to two serious, important issues of the day. We're going to talk about Muhammad Ali and his impact on society, and then we're going to talk about what's going on in the NWSL. And I can't imagine two more important issues than what those issues are and how they impact us at this very moment. Let's get right into it. It is great to have filmmaker and co-director David McMahon join us to discuss his PBS documentary with Ken Burns and his wife, Sarah Burns, Muhammad Ali. David, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. Uh, This is exciting for us. Uh, Jeff watched it first and told me that I was missing out if I wasn't watching it. And so I started watching it and I'm going to finish it, but I'm I'm through enough of it and then did enough preparation for this that the way that you traced Cassius Clay in the Jim Crow era of Louisville through the self-contradiction of the heavyweight that he was with the background Talk about the idea for where this came about. Well, um, a friend and colleague of ours named Jonathan Ike had was in the midst of writing a big comprehensive biography about Muhammad Ali. And he phoned us, this is around 2013, and he phoned us and said, you know, I've been doing a lot of research and I don't really see a documentary out there that pulls everything together. Uh, the activism, the boxing, the faith, the journey, the spiritual journey. Um, there are a lot of great films about him, but they tend to be about a single chapter. And so we poked around and found that he was right. There really wasn't anything to put it all under one roof. And so we saw this great opportunity. Um, It took us about seven years to make it. But um, the idea was that we could find people that would offer perspective that hadn't been shared before. We could do all the fights and see them see an arc of a career. Um, A lot of the projects had sort of stopped uh, with Foreman. When, you know, if you're writing the the, uh, dramatic feature about it, that's where you'd end you know, and they don't deal with homes or they were just about his, his struggle over uh, his refusal to be inducted into the U S army during the Vietnam war. And so we, we thought we could, we could take all these threads and, and tie them together and give people a picture of him that was as complete as, as any that had ever been offered. Well, more than that, what I was fascinated by was that it wasn't just a picture of Muhammad Ali. It was a picture of a period and a picture of our society. I mean, even to the point I was fascinated. I did not know this. And I know a lot about Muhammad Ali. I did not know the whole background of the the businessmen in Louisville getting together and basically hiring him to supposedly to keep him away from the mob. How did you learn these things as you were going through this process? Was it was it books that you read, articles that read? How do you get all of this information so that you know where you're going from the beginning to the end? Yeah, it's all of the above. I mean, working with Ken Burns and with public television, we get a timeline, a long production timeline that we wouldn't get, uh, the size of which we wouldn't get anywhere else. And so my wife, Sarah, and I, we started by reading everything we can get our hands on. Um, Muhammad Ali has to be the most well-documented figure of the 20th century who didn't serve as president. I mean, there's an incredible amount of footage. We pulled in 500 hours of film. We made available to our editors 15,000 photographs. Those were just the ones that we decided that might be useful to them. And so we looked at many more than that. And then if you go through the newspaper archives across the 60s, and you're right, Jeff, we really wanted to have a rich sort of backdrop for this story. We wanted to put him in in the times. You know, he was a guy 
Jason, as you said before, who's from segregated Louisville. You know, he grows up Cassius Clay looking at the white kids at the amusement park, but he's on the other side of the fence. And so he's sort of aware of all this. And we wanted to have that rich backdrop. So we wanted to find photographs to capture that. We wanted to find footage to capture that. And then we just, we, we made a pass through the newspapers of the day. And he's covered almost every day in the 60s. After he beats Liston in February of 64 to May of 64, when he goes to Africa, it seems every paper is writing about him every single day. So you can really see where he was and you can watch the drama unfold with Malcolm X and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. You can see what he's saying about possible next opponents. I mean, the, the whole thing is present in the archives. And so we had years to comb these archives to find facts that we didn't know that hadn't been shared, photographs that hadn't been seen and footage that nobody had looked at before. You know, it's not just the archives that you found, the footage that you found, but how you presented it that absolutely fascinated me. Uh, there were stretches in this where there was no commentary with the fights. You could hear the cornermen. You could hear the crowd. It was the footage with the sound boosting. You could hear Ali's taunts and the blows that he was delivering in a way that I hadn't heard before. Can you talk about the decision on how you presented everything you were able to find? Sure. Um, one thing we were going to do for certain was we're going to try to get back to the original material for every asset that we found. So we found a piece of 60 millimeter film, but it was sent to us a copy of a VHS tape. We were going to turn over every rock and try to find the original film. And then we were going to do a 4K transfer and a high quality color correction. So some things that you'd even seen before are going to look like you've never looked before. And again, it was about that timeline. But it's also about the relationships that we have with these archives. We worked with ESPN for years um, to work out the terms, to get to the deepest corners of the archive, um, to the, have the folks uh, find the actual original film. The same was true with the audio components. We wanted to find the announcers. We wanted to dig them out of a sort of muzzy audio recording that maybe that announcer of that early 60s fight, maybe it was his fifth or his sixth fight, that you could hear the announcer on the recording, but you had to kind of shave off the crowd noise that had closed in on it. And so we were on a mix stage for months trying to carve that out and elevate it and make it so that you could hear it. Um, and we wanted to privilege those original voices. We have narration. Um, we see that as a kind of connective tissue to get you from one fight to the next or to get you from a big cultural moment that is part of the backdrop to the next fight. But we also wanted to make sure that if there was a good recording of Howard Cosell, that we could hear every word of it and let him do some of the narrating. And so um, that's again about the time we have and about, um, we worked with a really talented mix engineer and uh, we would we arrived there with this two-dimensional thing and he made it three dimensions. I, I can't believe when you when you say 500 hours of footage that is then needs to be concisely cut into a story that is that is yeah, even though it's a documentary and you had more time that you could do this as far as the number of hours that it was as opposed to like an hour and a half movie. How do you how do you spend all of that time and figure out what you're going to put in and what you're going to leave out? We had on uh, Nick Davis last week who did a documentary on the 86 Mets once upon a time in Queens and asked him the same question and then. And then when, as you're answering that question, also, is there something that you now look back at? One particular thing that you go, I wish we had put that in. Well, it's, I wonder what Nick had to say, but um, I find it to be a subtractive process. Once you've accumulated all this material, um, it's about all of the hard choices of what you're going to put in there. Um, when we begin editing, we've got this, um, what is really amounts to a radio play. It's the Ken Burns reading the scratch narration, and it's the talking heads that we've placed in there but there's no music, there are no sound effects and there are no pictures yet. And so our eight hour movie at that stage at the beginning was a 12 hour radio play and we start chiseling right there. And 
so then um, once we get through that, we get it down to eight hours, then we start putting pictures and music in it and it grows a little bit. But across the rest of that time, it's all about um, getting rid of the material that doesn't end up being A+. Um, and by the end, hopefully you've got this breathless thing and this freight train that just hums along that leaves people at the edge of their seat. Um, the thing that- Which by the way, it, di it did. I mean, even, mm -hmm. even as one of the things, and we said this to Nick as well, is, is unlike a regular movie where you don't, you essentially don't know the ending in a fiction movie. In this, you know the ending. You, For the most part, a lot of people who are watching this already know this. Although I watched with somebody who knew nothing about Muhammad Ali and it was fascinating to them, but it was more fascinating to me because there were times I actually forced myself to forget what I knew because it was that exciting. Yeah, I mean, we're hopeful that even though you know the outcome, that it may feel like the emotion of it is so rich that you still get the butterflies as he's going into the final round against Frazier or whatever it is. And we're trying to make you feel this as much as we can. Um, in Ken's film about the Second World War, there's a, a fighter pilot named Quentin Annenson, and he's telling you about this harrowing mission that he went on where he was uh, shot and he lost his ability to stay in flight and the airplane starts spiraling towards the ground and you go, oh God, I hope he lives. He's the one telling you the story, um, <laughs> but it's, so of course he lives, but that's, we're always trying to achieve that is that you're wondering whether he lives even though there he is on camera. Um, to your question about what's not in there, um, I, I don't have anything that stands out that I felt like I really wish we could have gotten in there. But when we take on a subject like this, we're trying to scrape off all the myth that inevitably gathers on a figure of this magnitude. And so, we're not going to put in there the story of Muhammad Ali tossing his medal into the river unless we can actually find evidence that it happened, which we couldn't. And so we're looking, these are flawed people, Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali. We love them, but we want to make sure that people come away with a sense of their humanity. We don't want to further put them up higher on the pedestal. We want to find, figure out what their flaws are, and we want to figure out what the myth that is attached to them is. And if we can scrape it off, we do. It's interesting that you say that because at the beginning of the interview, you mentioned how previous stories that were told were basically chapters of his life. This is really a comprehensive look at Muhammad Ali. And Ken had said that Muhammad Ali is one of the most important people in the second half of the 21st century. How important was it for you to put Ali in the context of the times, though? From the popularity of boxing itself, to the divisiveness of the war, to racial and social implications of the, of the cultural changes of the era. H how, how was that for you? Oh, that's what makes him so exciting is trying to figure out, you know, where was he being moved by the times and where where was he actually having an impact on what was happening? And so trying to understand who he was uh, and, and reflect it against the times was the trick of this. And, you know, in terms of an athlete, a black athlete, aspiring heavyweight champion, one who said he was the greatest beginning at 12 years old and then goes and backs it up. The precedent for that is black heavyweight champion is Jack Johnson, who was basically run out of the sport and out of the country when he succeeded in capturing the heavyweight crown. And then there's Joe Lewis, whose white handlers said, you're not going to be able to defend your title if you don't keep quiet and be polite and behave in a particular way. And so here we are in the 60s and Muhammad Ali, he's shouting, he's braggadocious, um, he's demanding that people look and there's no, the, the sports writers who are covering him, there's no, there's, they're not used to that and it makes them uncomfortable and they cover him in a particular way. But it's also a time of the Beatles and happenings and the 60s are coming on fast. And so there's another crowd that's saying, oh, this guy makes sense to me, right? But then he goes and does this radical thing. He announces he's a member of the Nation of Islam. And then this big, strong, heavyweight fighter says, I'm not going to go 10,000 miles and fight poor brown people when I don't have the freedoms that I really deserve here at home. So then people loathe him. So he's responding to the times. 
But fast forward a few years later and people begin to catch up to him. That's that's not a war that we should have been a part of. And he should be free to be whoever he wants to be. The nation of Islam doesn't seem so frightening anymore. And so the it, it seems at times that he that that um, he's re- reacting to what's happening in the world. And it seems at times that the world is reacting to how he's responding to it. You did a great job of, of capturing what those times are. Did, as you were doing this, did you think about how would he play now? How would people in, in this fast media culture where everything is immediate and, and people are responding to things, the number of statements that Muhammad Ali made, there are so many things that he said that were at the time considered controversial that still probably would be. You wonder whether or not he would have been turned out to be the big figure or maybe he would have been canceled. Right. It's a really interesting question. Imagining um, Muhammad Ali's Twitter feed. Um, <laughs> where it somebody helping him curate sound bites and um, personal choices and how to, you know, to amplify them publicly so that, you know, his, his brand continues to get properly polished. It's just, you know, none of that makes sense to me when I think about how he went about his business. Um, you know, I mean, all props in the world to Colin Kaepernick for... Um, taking a knee and losing those years of his uh, football career. Um, The stakes when Muhammad Ali did what he did were so incredibly high. It's hard to imagine the stakes being any higher. He's at the height of his powers as an athlete when he refuses induction. He's giving up a ton of money. He doesn't really know whether he's going to be able to get back in the game. And he's facing five years in prison. And I just, I think it's hard to compare because um, I think athletes are doing a terrific job today of using their platform to speak out when they see things that are wrong, but the stakes just don't compare. Um, so it's hard to say things have so have changed so much technologically um, that it's really, it's, it's hard to imagine how he would have handled this. But I do think that, you know, he, he showed us again and again that he was going to stick to his principles no matter what. And so whatever it is, whatever the technology, whatever the times, I trust that he would have been on the right side of things. You know, you explored many of Ali's opponents in this, both black and white, and looked at how Ali was often criticized by white audiences, part because the Nation of Islam and Muslim, his uh, criticism of the war. Was it that people were threatened that he was threatening the way they were supposed to behave that they viewed as a threat? Was it the unknown? Can you talk about how people viewed Ali as an athlete based on who they believed him to be as a person? Yeah, well, Muhammad Ali, I think how he shapes his identity is really interesting, right? So he understands really quickly that it doesn't matter whether people like him or don't like him. As long as they turn out to see him, then everyone's going to make money and he's going to rise up the ranks more quickly. And so he shapes this kind of persona as a showman. And he's out there hollering about how he's the greatest. And he's drawing from Gorgeous George, um, the professional wrestler who everyone loved to loathe. He used to um, curl his hair and um, he would talk about how pretty he was. Um, Muhammad saw that he could do those things. And this was in the 50s that Gorgeous George was doing that. So it was at a time when that was considered inflammatory for crowds and and Ali saw the reaction he could get from Gorgeous George. And he knew that if he put butts in the seats, he would rise up the ranks more quickly and make everyone a bunch of money. Um, He's also drawing from Ray Robinson, the middleweight, who was a dancer in the ring. He he fought, was was closer to ballerina than slugger. Um, And so, and that's not how the white press thought of heavyweights. It was, you know, stand in the ring and fight, you know? And so he's crafting this sort of showman persona and a version of the heavyweight that no one has ever seen before. And then the other thing he's doing is he's 
framing the fights. He's making them about something other than just a athletic competition. Right. And so by the time he gets a heavyweight crown, it's about, it's a, you know, with Floyd Patterson, it's a battle of Islam versus Christianity. Uh, when it comes to other fighters like Ernie Terrell, it's who's more authentically black. Right. And so we thought it was important to offer portraits of some of these fighters like Sonny Liston, like Joe Frazier, uh, like George Foreman to let people know where they were because um, they're, experiences coming of age are more similar to each other's than they are to Muhammad Ali's. Muhammad Ali grows up in a kind of black version of the middle class in Louisville, segregated Louisville. But as Jerry Eisenberg says in the film, Muhammad Ali had a bicycle. By the time he was 13 years old, Joe Frazier was no longer in school at that age. He was working in the fields. His parents were sharecroppers. By the time he was in his late teens, he was up to his ankles in blood in a Philadelphia slaughterhouse working there. And so George Foreman's experience was a little closer to that. Joe Frazier's was a little closer to that. But Muhammad could make sometimes these fights about who's more, who's the champion of the black world. And, you know, Joe Frazier's darker skin. And, um, he's not as charismatic as Muhammad Ali. Now, sometimes the fighters, this could psych them out before they ever got in the ring. Um, oftentimes they, or at times they seem to know to go along with the program with him. But when it came to Joe Frazier, obviously he was highly offended as he should have been. Um, the ultimate, as Todd Boyd says in the film, the ultimate black conscious guy is using language of white racist to frame Joe Frazier. And um, this hurt Frazier a lot. Uh, Ali doesn't seem to understand how painful this is for him. He thinks that they're going to be friends. And he continues to say this stuff across their three fights and Frazier never forgives him. And so that kind of those kind of public conversations he, he's having, he's using them as a tool to drum up interest in the fights and to make them about something bigger, but it actually does seem to scar Frazier, understandably. You know, you talk about all, all the people that you talk to as part of compiling this and putting this together. Uh, of all the people you talk to, one, who was the person that you were most moved by as far as how they were moved or how it impacted their life? And, and, and second, what, what was it like to talk to all of these people who who were so close to him? Well, I'll say broadly that um, people got far more emotional talking about him than I had guessed they would have. And I think that they would have guessed that they would have. And so it often seemed that we would reach a point in the interview where there would be a memory, Sherman Jackson recalling being in a basement, a smoke-filled basement as a teenager with a bunch of his pals in Philly and listening to that call as uh, Muhammad Ali knocked out George Foreman. And um, he, as he's telling us in the interview, he goes, he quotes the broadcaster. He says, the great man has done it. And so here we are decades later, and he remembers exactly what was said when on the radio, when Ali delivered the knockout blow. I really enjoyed talking to Michael Benz, the one-time heavyweight champion about Muhammad Ali. He had a way of bringing everyone on the team into a better understanding of what was happening in the ring. And he, so he could really unpack what Muhammad was doing through a group of filmmakers who were unfamiliar really with boxing going in. But then also when we got to the point of his death in the interview, out comes the handkerchief, he's moved to tears, and he talks about the very simple text message that he got from a friend learning that Muhammad Ali had died. And he's just overcome emotionally. And this was nearly universal. Almost everybody got choked up at some point in their telling of their um, experience with him or account. And most of them hadn't met him. Um, 
Michael had, he said, I met him twice. That's it. But he was family. Um, and so I, I, and I had, we have lots of stories that couldn't make the film that were about those personal encounters. It just didn't become that kind of film, but we could have strung together 45 minutes of each of those people talking about their one encounter with him. And what we learned across making the film is anybody, whether they were involved in the film or we were just telling them what we were up to, if they met him once, it imprinted heavily and they recall every detail of it. Around the time that Ali came down with Parkinson's and began to accept that and become the humanitarian that he was, um, my grandmother had Parkinson's. And so that was sort of how I learned about it. Can you talk about his acceptance of his deterioration in conditions and how he didn't allow that to stop him from making an impact and impact? in fact, become more impactful. I remember the 96 Olympics with the torch lighting and, and the humanitarian that he became around the world. Yeah, I think it's important to see Muhammad Ali as a, a man who was on a spiritual journey from the time he was a teenager and discovered the nation of Islam to the time of his death. And I think he viewed Parkinson's as a challenge from God. And it's not that it make, didn't make him uncomfortable. He did hesitate when he was invited to light the torch because he thought people wouldn't know what how to make sense of this man who had been so graceful as an athlete so charismatic and now he can barely talk and he struggles to hold this torch and so he hesitated but he was also a man who needed to feel the love and he he gave out the love but he also needed to feel it coming back and so when he was reduced by parkinson's he did retreat somewhat but it's also important to remember that from the time of his retirement in the early 80s to the time of the 96 olympics he did continue to travel over overseas all the time and he was very popular in the muslim world and he did feel the love there for sure but when he he made the decision hesitatingly to do the olympics in 96 and obviously you know the stage was huge there were billions watching um but people were so moved by it that i think on the other side of that he became more comfortable speaking out on whatever the thing of the day was um, while also struggling with parkinson's but he really does in that 96 olympics moment if people had kind of forgotten him, everyone sort of gathered again around Muhammad Ali. And I think he ascended to a kind of sainthood and sort of stayed in that space right to the end. And I think we'll be able, that was an area that hadn't really been covered. The 96 Olympics, of course, had, but um, we were trying to give people a picture of what those last 40 years were like and how important his faith was and how at, even towards the end, um, he talks a lot about the, his legacy and the choices that he made and what he got right and what he got wrong. And when he got to the gates of paradise, would he be let in based on whether the good outweighed the bad? And that was all through a spiritual lens for him. You talked at the beginning about uh, wanting to scrape away the myth and only telling the facts. And it's important in your role to be objective. But I can tell you from me watching it and the people that I've talked to, everybody's moved. Do you get to the point uh, when you look back at this, that, that there were points where you realized how moved you are by what you created and also how other and looking back and realizing how moved other people are by watching. Well, it's, I think I'm, I've got my filmmaker cap on across this process. And um, so maybe there's an emotional distance. Um, it's not that I'm not moved at times. And I left a lot of those interviews in tears myself. Um, but I actually think, and you know, I didn't imagine we'd ever be able to look at this movie. It's an eight hour movie. We're facing a pandemic. Um, we're just getting back into the theaters right now. No one was going to program this eight-hour movie in their cinema. I never imagined I'd have a chance to sit and watch with strangers, which is really the best part of it. It's going to a festival and watching nervously to see how people respond. Do they get the laughs? Do they care when the bad thing happens? Are they happy when the good thing happens? Um, are they affected by the end, by the sum total of everything? And um, we did get to play this film at the Telluride Film Festival in September and sit in a room with a couple hundred people 
And that's when I became more emotional about it. Um, I could just observe it with the surround sound playing on a big screen, feeling how people in the room were responding to it. And um, as a viewer, then I think I, I was sort of whacked for the first time emotionally by what it was. But I think we all fell in love with him very early on. Um, and it was important. We're at a certain inflection point, again, with issues of race in this country. Um, we're facing a pandemic and we're all huddled with our loved ones at home. And he was the perfect figure to spend this period with because he had something to say it seemed about everything that was happening and that's why I think we made this movie that is comprehensive and I think it covers as much of his life as any project ever has but we should just keep telling this guy's story as long as we're a society because it, no matter the time there will always be something to learn from him uh, about what's going on in that moment. Uh, we can't wait to keep telling it hopefully with you the PBS documentary is Muhammad Ali Filmmakers David McMahon, Ken Burns, and Sarah Burns. David, thank you so much for the time. We really enjoyed the conversation. And of course, we really enjoyed the PBS documentary too. Best of luck. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed being on with you. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825. Repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. So happy to have Susie Petricelli, author of Raised a Warrior, back on the show with us today. Thanks so much for joining us. We wish these weren't such serious issues to talk about today, but thank <laughs> you so much for the time. Thank you, guys. I'm always happy to be here. Well, before we get to the serious, serious stuff, though, the last time we had you on, I loved the interview, but I loved the Twitter exchange we had with you afterwards, where <laughs> your 14-year-old had overheard our conversation and was approving, said, good job, mom. How cool was yeah. that? Because that was cool for it us to see. Cool. Right. Yeah, you know how it is. Teenagers are, uh, are pretty hard on their parents, so you know, to get his approval. And I, w I wasn't even asking for it. He just said it out of, out of nowhere. It was so nice. That's awesome. And it was my son, you know, so it means even more. The heart of sports, bringing families yes. together since forever. Yes. Um, we'll get into the heavy stuff now, and then we'll, we'll rotate back to other stuff. This is obviously, you're somebody who's been in soccer for your whole life, so I can't imagine what this time is like. For our listeners who aren't familiar, about two weeks ago, The Athletic published a story that really rocked the world of women's soccer, uh, a bunch of women in the NWSL accusing a prominent coach, Paul Riley, of sexual coercion. In the wake of that, we've seen the commissioner of the league resign. Uh, we've seen the coach fired. The controlling owner of the Washington Spirits has stepped down. As someone who's seen this her whole life, how challenging is this story for you to see and really offer commentary on right now? You know, it's definitely heavy. It's definitely heavy. It's definitely uh, sensitive, for sure, to talk about. Um, but... I, it, you know, for someone who grew up in the soccer world, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, I, everyone I know, as we've been talking the last few weeks since the story came out, everyone I know who played the game with me, um, you know, we all know players who married their coaches. We all, you know, knew um, we've all had instances, seen instances of abuse um, over the years, all different kinds of abuse, racial abuse, sexual abuse, um, sexual harassment. Um, you know, verbal harassment about, you know, uh, the way players are playing. Um, and um, so it's not it's not really a surprise. It's very common. 
Um, I think the level that, you know, Paul Riley took the abuse to with his players obviously is an extreme, um, is, is very extreme. Um, I think, you know, that's more related, that's more uh, extreme to the point of something like a Larry Nassar, um, where it's, it's really, um, you know, just very hard to believe and, and hard to, uh, and hard to, and hard to understand why, um, you know, the league didn't act sooner to protect those players. Um, I think that's the disappointing, the most disappointing piece to me is that, you know, now we do know that, um, you know, the league knew, the league knew what was going on and they allowed, you know, in 2015 and they, they allowed him to get another coaching job within the league. Um, and then again, they allowed him to get another coaching job um, and end up finally with, with the you know, North Carolina courage. So um, that, that to me, and that's a pattern, right? He's not the only one where that happened. He, you know, it happened um, in all rain with uh, Ben Steady, who, you know, there were formal complaints from Lindsay Horan against him when she was at PSG and they allowed him to come to, you know, coach the all rain in the NWSL. Um, so that, that's a pattern that we, that we've seen that we're seeing is where formal complaints are made against coaches but they're not taken seriously. The women aren't believed. They're not listened to. The coaches, can, you know, either get removed. You know, there are situations where the coaches are removed and fired, but there's no formal statement saying why. If in, in several cases, the coach was actually thanked for their for their contribution to the team after they were fired, and then they were allowed to move forward and get another job coaching women. Um, so you know, the the, the um, you know, it's, it's, it feels like betrayal in a lot of ways, you know, Meg Linehan has said that word um, in her article, she called it institutional betrayal. Um, and that really is what it feels like. Um, but, um, you know, it is common. It's not a surprise. Um, you know, anyone in the soccer world knows it's been there. See, and that's the thing is, is you say it's not a surprise to people outside of the NWSL world. It is a surprise to, to, to you and to people that are in the know it's not, and that's what's so shocking about it. Not that we don't know about it or didn't know about it at the time, but that people did in, in large numbers seem to know about it within an organization that is a women's sports league. And somehow yeah. it continued to go on for that long. How could it? I mean, what are you hearing as to the reasons that it was able to go on that long? I think, you know, it's not just in the NWSL, right? It's, it's, it's global. It's a global problem where women aren't listened to and women are, you know, their complaints are ignored. Um, you know, they're the coach of the Canada, one of the youth national teams in Canada was accused of um, harassment. Um, you know, recently, you know, Samson in England, the coach of the women's team, he was removed for harassment. Um, you know, obviously, I don't know if you guys know the story about the women in Afghanistan who were sexually abused by the president of their federation. Um, and they all, you know, most recently then had to flee out of Afghanistan, right, with the help of the Australian government and um, some very amazing activists, um, Kalita Popal, for one. Um, and, you know, the women and the young players in Haiti have all been sexual abuse. So the, the stories are out there and they're being reported. I think, um, you know, it's the interesting piece is that it still feels like a surprise to mainstream American, um, you know, culture um, when, you know, like these, it's not like these stories are just coming out in the media for the first time. They've always been there. It's just that, you know, I think for, for the, in this particular case, you know, Meg Linehan has earned a ton of respect and a ton of credibility um, working in women's soccer for the last nine years or 10 years. And, um, 
you know, com her combined with someone like Molly Hensley Clancy at the Washington Post, who wasn't originally a sports writer. She was an investigative reporter. Um, and, um, you know, I, I credit to The Athletic and credit to The Washington Post for giving those, you know, female reporters the support and the, you know, backup and the finances to pay for lawyers. I mean, they, you know, fact checked all these stories. They, you know, got players to go on the record. Um, you know, I think the the credibility of that of those of the of that reporting this year, uh, particularly in, in August around the Washington Spirit, and then obviously with uh, Meg Linehan and the Athletic um, around Paul Riley. Um, and then also you got to remember now, finally, we have players like Alex Morgan who have a ton of public credibility and a ton of public influence. She has more Twitter, she has more social media followers than Tom Brady. So you have someone like her, um, you know, and, and obviously a reputation for integrity and honesty. Um, you have someone like her who's, um, you know, giving, lending her credibility to these players, Mana Shim and, and Sinead Fairley. Um, at the, uh, you know, in the players in the Lin in Meg Linehan's article. Um, and, um, and then all of a sudden, it is a game changer, you know, it takes, it takes, uh, it takes a lot of very important people who are now above the hierarchy in like the power hi hierarchy in soccer above the like the, the person like Paul Riley, you know, those, you know, you have to have people who aren't afraid for their jobs, Alex Morgan, he Paul Riley can't stop Alex Morgan's career, you know, um, you so you have to have you yeah, go ahead. You mentioned Alex Morgan, and yeah. she's she's sort of spoken to what you've been talking about. She, I saw her say that women have been pulled away from playing soccer because of failures in how the system is set up for them, but added that things are changing as players stand up to their employers. What kind of system do you think needs to put in be put in place that will first protect these players and women, but second, still allow the league to thrive? Because I saw Heather O'Reilly say that soccer swept a lot of bad things under the rug in order to make sure the league was successful. So it seems like there's this yeah. contrast between wanting the limited opportunities there are to succeed, but at the same time raising your voice and creating headlines that may fly against that for these women. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's one, that's one very common theme in all of this is that, um, you know, there was always the sort of over overarching theme that, you know, if we speak up, if, the, if, you know, we call out these scandals in women's soccer, it could potentially hurt the rise of our league. It could potentially hurt um, the growth of the league. And, you know, the, the, you know, we've been fighting for so long to have a successful league, right? This is the third try at, at a, at a women's soccer league in the United States that we are protective of it and we don't want it to fail. And um, so I think, you know, at, Anything that was seen to threaten that, um, you know, was, you know, we were we were so we were scared to scared to do anything that was going to disrupt the growth of the league. Right. Um, and so, you know, that that was a like a sad piece to all of this. And, you know, a very sad piece to all this was that we, you know, a lot of us sort of um, kept that sort of culture of silence going. Um, because we were afraid to uh, do anything to harm the growth of the league of the game. The culture of silence not only ended a couple of weeks ago, um, it seemed to have raised the profile of the NWSL in a positive way. When you saw what, what the players were doing, where they were stopping games and locking arms, 
What was your reaction as somebody that is, has been involved in this and, and, and gone through this fight? You know, uh, again, I don't think I was surprised by how um, thoughtful and well planned out that protest was. You know, women athletes around the world um, are uh, have uh, you know a long history of um, advocacy and, and activism, and um, and uh, you know we're one of the first to, um, as a league, do you know the Black Lives Matter support Black support the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so you know. We, um, I thought that that was a beautiful protest, to be honest with you. Um, it was poignant. It was profound. You know, the fact that they uh, stopped play for six minutes, which represented the six years that Sinead Farley was trying to have someone listen to her and listen to her complaints. And the, the six years that Paul Riley was al still allowed to be in contact with players, that he, you know, like obviously continuing the abuse of players um, and her. Um, you know, so, uh, and then obviously seeing that the Barclays Women's League, um, you know, the women in England, you know, in solidarity did the same protest in their next set of games. Um, you know, that to me, I mean, actually literally gives me chills just thinking about like the, you know, the global solidarity that's growing in the women's game. Um, and I think it's, you know, sadly, uh, I think, you know, like we, you know, the NWSL always prided itself on being the best women's league in the world. Um, you know, I think that this is a step in this is a continuation of that in a way, in a sad way, because I think hopefully this will set an example um, or at least allow other leagues and other girls to, you know, uh, also end this culture of silence and um, and put in place, you know, anti-harassment policies, but not just the anti-harassment policies, but the investig, you know, independent the system of an independent investigation and and the culture of just sweeping this stuff under the rug and allowing these guys to fail, you know, fail forward. They're they're failing, they're abusing players, and then they're landing on their feet. Right? It it doesn't make sense. It has to stop. With with, with the things that you're talking about, the the governors basically, the things that are put on place to stop this from happening. Are you confident now? that these things are going to happen, that this will, not that it will never happen again, because you can't guarantee that, but, but that there is now enough empowerment that it will stop or that, that if it happens, it'll be brought to light immediately and rectified. You know, that's a really good question. Um, I think we're closer to that than we've ever been um, in the NWSL. I think the players have a lot of power now, I think, um, but there are, you gotta like, imagine how many, you know, how many players, only three players went on record speaking out, right? So imagine how many players are still afraid to speak out because they're still afraid of retaliation. They're still afraid of what's going to happen to their career, still afraid of their coaches, still afraid of their owners and their general managers. So, you know, I think, you know, confident that things are going to change right away. I can't say that, but but I am hopeful. Um, I do think that the the players have, have shifted the power uh, balance um, now and, you um, you know, obviously, you know, the, the commissioner had to resign. Also, general counsel, at least Levine for the NWSL had to resign. Um, and, you know, the NWSLPA has a lot of, has a lot of, uh, you know, has earned a lot of respect and a lot of credibility. Um, you know, they're the ones that put in place the hotline. They're paying, the NWSLPA is paying for the hotline, anonymous hotline for players right now. The league hasn't stepped in and said they were, they're going to pay for that yet which um, which is so embarrassing frankly i it's mean embarrassing. it's how do you yeah. and i'm not ask, I'm asking you to have to take that but that's my own opinion like how is it that you have your commissioner go your head of legal go and you're still making the players pay for the hotline to report all the things that made all these people go 
Right. It, it exactly. just it just makes no sense to me. But it leads to the the question I have about the larger reckoning we're seeing across sports for women and athletes. You mentioned Larry Nasser at the start and it was gut wrenching to watch the women gymnasts who were Olympic heroes have to testify for testify before Congress about how many years they were ignored for. Now you have these women soccer athletes who have the same thing. How do you think the next phase of this goes as people continue to step forward and speak their truth? Are we going to see more revelations that people have known about that are secret? Is it just going to stop? What do you what do you think happens now? You know, I'm hoping that th- that now that the system is in place, the anti-harassment policy seems well, I, I have it here. It's, it's you know, it. It's actually very clear. Um, I think there was a lot of gray area where players didn't really know if they were being abused or not. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a you know it's a strange thing, right? Because we do have a lot of coaches screaming at players. Like that's a normalized thing. I mean, I I go out and watch my kids play sports, and the coaches are yelling at them. Everybody's yelling at everybody, right? Um, so you know, there's a lot of gray area, but I think that. Um, at least particularly in the case of this, you know, anti-harassment policy for the NWSL, it's very clear. Um, you know, it, it's 15 pages. It's very clear. Um, and um, I think going forward, um, you know, it's, it's going to be it's going to be a lot harder for these things to, for the uh, for the um, the bad actors to call it call it a gray area anymore. What do you think are going to be the next steps? Um, I think the next steps has to be, you know, it's all it's all about transparency. Right. It's all about like these independent investigations. Um, it's all about uh, transparency. You know, I think um, I think that you know the when Christy Holly was fired from Louisville, I think he was the only one that was where the the uh, team the club gave a, a a reason for his firing that was cause. He was fired for cause. Um, I think other than that, you know, there we we got these statements from the league where it was or from the clubs that said, um, you know, he's, he's moving on. Thank you for his, for his contribution. Um, so I think that has to stop, right? We have to actually get independent investigations and the investigation, the results of the investigations have to be, have to be um, made public. Well, and, and that, that is the one thing you mentioned that there haven't been a lot of people still that have come forward. Right. And, and, yeah. and so what has to happen now, right now, to make sure that happens, do do the Alex Morgans of the world have to do more? I mean, they've done so much already, but is there something more that the people that are the stars of the sport can do to help protect the ones that aren't the stars of the sport that may may feel like they have less power than she does? Or is it more than just the players? Is it the role that Jeff and I have in the media and other media members? Is it elected officials? Like, Is it larger than just the athletes? Are we putting an unfair burden on them for that? You know, I think it's definitely on the, I think it's definitely on the athletes. They've been carrying that, you know, that leadership uh, weight for a long time. And I think they'll continue to do that because they love the game and they love their teammates and they love the league. Um, And, um, but yes, I I think, you know, the media is, is, has a powerful role in this. Um, I think even just having, you know, telling more women's stories, um, having me on to talk about these issues, I think is, is a huge help. I said that to you guys, you know, first when I, when I was on over the summer, um, you know, we need to shift that power. We need to shift that balance between men's and women's stories being told in the media. Um, because, you know, like we were talking about, like those stories are out there. Um, you know, now that, now that it's come into sort of the national eye, you know, the national, um, the national view, uh, 
that like we just now I think everybody it's almost like this is a silly example but you know how like when you somebody tells you about a certain car and then all of a sudden that car you see that car everywhere um you know what I mean so I'm hoping that now that this has come into sort of like a, a national awareness um people will start seeing you know seeing these stories and paying more attention and keeping them going and digging a little deeper and not just and not just um and and also like in our own lives like if you know you know if you, I think all of us have heard stories where, you know, there's a, maybe a rumor that someone, something, you know, uh, you know, something inappropriate is going on with, with a, with a parent or a coach or a player. And a lot of the times we just let those things go because we assume that the governing body or the, you know, the person in charge, the administration will, will run its course and take, and, you know, take action and work it out without us having to step in. But I think we all need to take a responsibility and say, all right, well, maybe it is on us to step in. Maybe it's, you know, maybe we can't exactly trust that the, uh, that the, um, you know, administrators in those clubs are going to step in. Maybe we need to force that a little more. And and as you saw, the other story that's come out in the last couple of weeks, the last week is is with John Gruden. And you, and you see the stories of, of things that he said, the misogynistic things he said, the there were so many things that are said in those emails over a long period of time to a lot of people that were in power. Yeah. And, and, and they're only now coming out because the, apparently the owner didn't do enough the first time. And when you see those kinds of things, do you think that, that something positive can come out of something like that? That maybe that drawing the spotlight on the NFL and all of these leagues will help the dialogue happen? Or do you think that it just, are you concerned that all it does is they get rid of the one person and then they move on? No, I really do hope that it's a huge, you know, cultural shift. I do hope the movement um, carries into men's sports and carries into youth sports. Um, And, uh, you know, I think if, if we do, you know, if every organization has a policy, if every company has a policy where, you know, uh, harassment of any kind is, um, you know, is not allowed if there's a zero tolerance for harassment of any kind. Um, I think that that's a really good first step. I think, you know, you, you, you guys know, and, and I've been in it and, you know, my dad was a tough cookie. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of verbal abuse that goes on in sports and some of it is completely normalized. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, we have a long way to go in changing that. Um, and, you know, I, I do, I really do am hopeful that this is the beginning of that, of that shift. Well, you talked about youth sports. I, I'm out of the youth sports game now that my, <laughs> my kid has grown, but, but I'll I did be getting see in that. it with and, my young kids. Well, well, no, but that that's, it's a problem. <laughs> be where, you know, be careful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Susie, you see, you see that now I saw that uh, my son had when, when, when he was young, a, a coach who would scream at the kids to the point that is, you know, there was stuff coming out of his mouth Yeah. And, and some of us stood up and said, we, we can't have that. Are you seeing more of that? Are you, and you're, are you seeing organized sports going in a more positive uh, direction of respecting others? I sadly am not, and I'm worried about it, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I've very recently seen incidents of coaches um, berating, you know, teenage girls uh, to the point where referees have had to step in. Um, so, and, you know, I... I I, I, you know, the worry of the person that's supposed to be reporting it is that they're going to hurt, you know, the, they're going to hurt their child's chances of getting recruited or their child's chance, you know, there's going to be retaliation from the coach. 
I mean, it's it's just it's sim it's all the same themes themes that we're seeing in the NWSL and youth sports. Um, and uh, you know, I don't see I don't see a lot of it changing. I know, thank goodness, you still have programs like AYSO where you know the coaches. Every coach has to go through six hours of of training, anti harassment training, and positivity training, and um, so I do know that there are organizations that are trying to do good and trying to change sort of that culture. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I just hope it, I hope it continues. I hope it, I hope it, uh, I hope it grows, you know, and it's, I do feel bad for these kids cause they, you know, I, I, I do believe that there's a lot of verbal abuse that goes on in new sports. Well, we're definitely going to want to keep talking about it with you because of the perspective that you bring to it. And we appreciate the time, but before we go, I want to close on a happier note. Ted yes. Lasso. You're a Ted Lasso fan. Oh my God. Yes, of course. So in fairness, I told Jeff, I haven't seen the last episode yet and I'm avoiding all of the rumors and, and okay. spoilers. We should, we should ruin no it. Don't, right don't now, ruin it for me. He's had days to do it. And I Jeff, keep telling him he should have watched it because to me it was the best episode ever. Jeff <laughs> tells me regularly he loves this show because at the end of it, he finds himself smiling and feeling happy in a world where there isn't all of that. How exciting is it for you to see a show about soccer that does that for people? And clearly as a soccer player, it's, it's real enough for you that you've been able to enjoy it a little bit. And talks oh, I, about, abs I absolutely love it. Yeah. And it talks about respect. Uh, yep. and, and that's why it's, to me, that's why the show is different is be because the lead character, there's not the twist that all of a sudden he's going to do something horrible. It's him always trying to connect with people and respect their opinion. Yep. And they have a diverse team, right? There's people from all over the world on their team. Um, and um, I, yeah, and, you know, I just think their positive attitude is, is you know, is, um, is it's, you know, catchy. Um, you know what I'm trying to say? It's, it's, uh, it's like, you know, you can't, and, and like his little slow, his little things that he says, like, forget about it, be like a guppy. Um, you know, it's just, it's the best. Um, and, and I have a, a personal, um, I personally connect with it even deeper because, you know, I, my father was an American football player um, and he once did try to coach us in soccer. So <laughs> I kind of can, re I can definitely, uh, you know, relate to that feeling of Ted Lasso, just walking into a soccer game and being like, you know, the, like, you know, trying to, pr trying to come into it with the American football mentality. Um, and you know, he's like, and what's that offside thing again? Tell me, tell me what that corner, why are we doing a corner kick? You know? Um, so, so I, I just love it from, I just love it from all sides. And I obviously, you know, the, the female owner of the club and there's a lot of good female characters in the show, which is, I think is always really important. Um, it, it seems and, to show uh, the... yeah, it's, and it's just fun. It's lighthearted. It's funny. And it has a great heart. And there's, they talk about mental illness, you know, they have the, the, uh, the doctor that comes in, um, the psychologist that comes in. I think she's pr my one of my favorite characters in the whole thing. Um, yeah, it's great. I just love it. It seems to show the best of sports, the overcoming the adversity, but at the same time, keeping the respect for each other and the diversity that you have with sports bringing people together. So we figure that's a good place to end it for this time. <laughs> Susie, we hope that this story starts to make change. Uh, we don't want to keep having this conversation with you. We'd like to have different ones. But until that happens, we appreciate you giving us time so that we understand what's going on. Yeah, I thank you. Thank you, guys. I really am grateful to be here. Um, and obviously, you know, I appreciate when you guys let me come on. Jeff, you want to talk Always about time. Thanks so powerful much. interviews. Although we were talking about things that happened in the past with both of them, we got into how they're relevant to today and things that are now going on that are continuing to change the landscape. I, I, don't, I don't know how these issues could become any more important. And to have these two guests, somebody who's documented 
an entire period of history that's still relevant today and then have somebody who has lived through a period and been a pioneer. Those are the kind of people that you want to be talking to and you want them to be the kind of people that lead dialogue on these issues. Without a doubt. And look, we got into it with Susie. There was huge news this week in the NFL with emails that John Gruden sent between 2011 and future years to uh, the Washington organization of Bruce Allen that were released through that investigation where he makes all kinds of inappropriate comments and remarks. He resigned. I'm really not sure why he wasn't fired, frankly. But this seems like the opening of Pandora's box. There are people that are calling for the release of all of the emails from the Washington football team investigation. That's 625,000 emails, Jeff. I'm sure people said a lot. Remember, this was during Colin Kaepernick. What's your thoughts about all of this? Well, first of all, does it not show you the arrogance of John Gruden? That he felt this comfortable for close to a decade to spew out this nonsense to all of his buddies. And it, it, it is baffling. And it's funny. It's not funny. It's, it's, it, it's funny in a, not a ha-ha way. Let's put it that way. That when Gruden left Tampa Bay, there were players that were raising issues with him, about him. And, and now they're, they're out saying, see, we told you so. And Gruden is just, he's one of those people who you could see the arrogance dripping from him from year for years nobody really thought about it but this when you have this kind of arrogance and i don't see gruden's apology if you want to call it that before he had to resign as much of an apology it wasn't I mean, it, really it was, an apology it was, it was a sorry i got caught but that's part of this problem is where does this go next the, these well, are things well, in writing well, hold on it was it, it, it wasn't just not an apology it was the I don't have a racist bone in my body. We have some sort of bone that needs some sort of education because the things that he said about Demora Smith and the things that he said about so many different people, about Michael Sam, about just a bunch of different people. And by the way, kudos to Jeff Fisher for coming out. Now, I hope it, it stays this way and facts don't change over time. But for him coming out and saying, nobody, nobody made us do anything. We took him because he was the right player to take at that position. And, and we didn't consider anything else other than that. Does the NFL have to release all of the emails now? Well, look, because DeMar, from- DeMar Smith, by the way, is alleging that potentially they would talk about why they're not hiring minority coaches. Which no, gets see, and and so this, this is, this is where I'm, I'm going to be a little bit of a lawyer here and, and that he didn't, what concerns me about what he said is he's not alleging that there's something in there as if he knows it. What he's he said is, I fear that there's something in there. And to me, that's irresponsible at this point. I think what he should be doing is, and maybe he already did this behind the scenes, is he should be as head of the NFLPA going to the NFL and saying to them, we want to see these because we are concerned about it. And if, if we're wrong about it, the responsible thing to do would be to review these and then be able to say that and have comfort for our players. What he shouldn't have done, in my mind, is come out and say, I fear something when he has no facts to back it up. And, and to your question about should, should these emails be released publicly, this was done as part of an investigation. As a lawyer, you do not want all of this stuff just out there. You don't know the consequences of just spitting all of this stuff out to the public. It should be under these circumstances and these times and what's going on with the NFL. 
is there should be their organization, the NFLPA. And quite frankly, I don't know if there's a coaches association. The coaches association should be involved in this too, as should the refs association, because Gruden said not nice things about some refs too. And, And the people that are heads of that group should sit down and review these. And then they should have a game plan as to what they do going forward. Just releasing them to the public. You know what happens? Reporters who are looking for sensationalized stories take snippets out of it. And if you give smart people the chance to look at these things and then discuss it intelligently, they get ahead of the snippet. From a public relations standpoint, though, it's a problem for the NFL. <laughs> it's a big problem. And not releasing it will lead to other skepticism and conspiracy and Mark, theories. And by the way, Mark Davis's response was is embarrassing. Beyond embarrassing. Just the whole thing. I don't understand how Gruden even coached. They knew that this was happening. The NFL basically set them up saying, giving them stuff and seeing how they would react. And then when they didn't, that was it. They decided that they would release more. How does Mark Davis continue? Well, he's going to try. He's he's got a bunch of players who have all got to doubt his leadership at this point. It's going to be the last word. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.